0: This episode of Beg to Differ is brought to you by HelloFresh and BetterHelp. Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the New York Times, Brett Stevens. Thank you, one and all. I'd like to begin with the war in Israel and Gaza we are in an unprecedented time, it seems to me, where the kinds of responses to the atrocities that were committed by Hamas against Israel is, is a little bit bewildering and deeply disturbing to many people on the left who had considered themselves to be allies with a lot of groups that we're suddenly celebrating, or at least not condemning, what happened. And of course, now we are several weeks in, and the calls for ceasefire are becoming louder and louder with even President Biden, who's been a very stalwart supporter of and defender of Israel in all of this. But Biden is now saying there needs to be a pause So, Brett, I'm going to start with you because interesting column. I understand you've been over there. You had an interesting column about other possible ways for Israel to win this war in Gaza other than simply pounding from the air or doing a massive ground invasion. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, Mona, it's uh, nice to be back in the United States. I just returned uh, the day before yesterday, Um, and thank you for, for having me on on the show. The idea to which you are referring comes not from me, but from Naftali Bennett, the uh, former prime minister. He calls it his squeeze approach, which is essentially to cut Gaza into two distinct halves and to essentially lay siege to northern Gaza with humanitarian corridors so that civilians can escape and Israel can make sure that uh, among those civilians, you're not finding uh, Hamas terrorists uh, fleeing alongside of them. But the central part of his plan was not to go in main force into Gaza itself, not to play Hamas's game by having Israeli troops get bogged down in a maze of back streets and uh, underground tunnels, but essentially to wait Hamas out, to to turn time, uh, which Hamas has seen as its friend, into an enemy, and uh, to use targeted attacks, special operations forces to rescue hostages, go after Hamas leadership, take out nodes, deprive them of fuel that's required for them to run their underground empire, and eventually kill many of them and let the rest of them get on a ship and go to Tunis or Algeria or one of their sponsors, much as the PLO fled Beirut in 1982 when uh, the Israeli army laid siege to to that city. Now, I wrote that last week, and we'll have to see whether that's the approach that the Israeli armies adopted.
0: There are reports today that Israel is attempting to cut Gaza in half, I just saw that, I think on Reuters or Bloomberg, so possible that they are actually following that advice. But something that you said, I wanna probe a little further on this idea of playing Hamas's game, because there is this eerie sense that one gets that you know, Hamas planned out so meticulously, trying to elicit an overreaction, although I hesitate to even use that word because what is an overreaction to what Hamas did? But they not only murdered and tortured civilians and kidnapped grandmothers and so on, they filmed it all. They reveled in it. It was all done for maximum emotional impact on the Israeli public so that they could then sacrifice their own Palestinian civilians at the hands of Israelis and claim victimhood and thereby sort of draw Israel into a no-win situation. And is that part of playing Hamas's game? Well, you know, there's a wonderful scene in the
1: prequel to Silence of the Lambs, a movie called Manhunter, which explains how um, Hannibal Lecter, you know the uh, the character uh, Anthony Hopkins plays. Uh, how he got into jail in the first place, and there's a wonderful dialogue between the the inspector who or the cop who got him in jail and, and Lecter. It's a prison dialogue, and uh, the cop says, "You know, you're brilliant, Doctor Lecter, but I had one advantage over you." And Lecter sort of his interest is piqued. He says, "Oh, really? What what was the advantage?" And the cop says, um, you're insane. And and I think Hamas uh, has a lector-like quality in which they, some of the planning was extraordinarily meticulous and ingenious. And there was a quality of sort of instrumental rationality to what they did. But at the end of the day, it's an insane organization whose First, who's alpha and omega, if you will, is is to kill Jews and kill as many Jews as possible. And that may have ended up being their their weakness. Now, Hamas, I think, believed that even after committing an atrocity on this scale, the Israelis would ultimately let up, relent, succumb to international pressure, bomb a lot of targets, kill a lot of Palestinians, and provide uh, propaganda points for, uh, for their side— and then let go. That does not seem to be the way in which Israelis are responding this time. And um, my guess is that Hamas will ultimately find, and I wrote this on October 7th, that its calculation, clever in some sense as it was, and, and in evil as it was, is not gonna play into their hands that this is going to be the end of Hamas as a political and military force in Gaza and probably the West Bank too.
0: Linda, one of the things that is playing out, I think, according to Hamas's plans, is that, you know, the longer this goes on, the more international sympathy tilts away from Israel and toward Hamas, or toward the Palestinians at least, not toward Hamas necessarily, although in some cases on the far left, you do find sympathy for Hamas. So it does seem that Israel, no matter what, even if they are determined, they are on a clock I don't know how that's going to play out, but one of the questions that is also arising is, if Israel is successful in completely demolishing Hamas as a as a military and political entity in Gaza, what comes next? Uh, what right? What, who's going to
2: run the place? Right. I mean, you know, we got ISIS out of our success in in battling um, others uh, in Iraq and elsewhere. So who knows what's going to come next? I, I do have to say one of the things that's been a bit of a surprise to me, uh, being old enough to have uh, you know lived through the sixty seven war, the seventy three war, and see American reaction. This time, there seems to be a much better organized, more widespread opposition to Israel than I have ever seen before in any of the kinds of conflicts um, And although I think it's been very gratifying the way in which President Biden and indeed the leaders of of most of, I would say, the civilized world anyway, uh, have come to to Israel's defense and have talked about their right of being able to defend themselves. And their uh, duty. And their duty, right. The duty to defend themselves. That's an uh, even better uh, formulation. But it isn't going to last forever. And we're already seeing Tony Blinken and the president and others talking, you know, we're not talking about ceasefires, but we are talking about pauses. And of course, those pictures that are coming out of Gaza are horrifying of, of you know, children being carried through the streets who've been uh, killed uh, in, in these bombings. But I think Israel has tried to make it clear. I mean, you know, the so-called, you know, Refugee camp uh, that uh, has been hit, Jamila. That is hardly a camp as we normally think of refugee camps. You know, with tents and and temporary uh, buildings. It, it was you know just like the rest of of Gaza. Gaza City. They're you know uh, buildings, uh, many story buildings, and it's decades old now. So it's not you know it's it's far from temporary, and. People were warned to leave and some didn't, some did. One wonders uh, what the difference was. Is it really just people who had no means to leave? I mean, when you look at the pictures of the bombing and the craters, it's mostly young men that you see. Women seem to be missing from Palestinian society. Uh, the women that you see are all in hijabs. You know, it, it's a, a very stark picture. It's a very, very... Well, that doesn't make them missing, exactly. No, no it doesn't make them miss, But they're missing in the pictures. I mean, just look at the pictures. I mean, you can go through most of the pictures. There are very few women that you see. Mm-hmm. And the point is, the fact that they are young men, are these all innocent civilians, or are they also Hamas fighters? I don't know. Now, it's it's possible that the Hamas fighters keep their families with them. And, and of course, their families are innocent. Certainly, the children are innocent. But this idea that these are uh, people who have no choice, they were warned, and it you know, took, what, three weeks to begin uh, the bombing of some of these areas, and they didn't leave. So, uh, that doesn't seem to matter, though, uh, to those who are pro-Palestinian, and, and it is shocking to me how widespread these demonstrations are. I mean, I'm not surprised that they're occurring in places like uh, Lebanon and Yemen and, you know, throughout the Arab world, but what is surprising is that they are taking place in American cities, and it's not all Palestinian Americans or Arab Americans who are in these protests. It's a lot of, of young people, a lot of college students, we've seen them across campuses. And that is incredibly worrisome. and it is hard for me to believe that should this go on for months, that you are not going to see major erosion in support in the United States and certainly in Europe, which you know is always you know very tenuous in their uh, support
0: for these kinds of efforts. Bill Galston, one of the things that uh, has been bruited is that there would be some kind of international force that would move into Gaza after the fighting and uh, restore order and run the place at least for a while. And others have scoffed at this notion, saying that You know, any of the nations that have been suggested are either too compromised or have their own very good political reasons based on their own domestic populations, for example, Turkey or Egypt or Saudi Arabia, which actually Saudi never deploys its troops to do anything. So But the idea is that anybody who came in after a war with Israel would be seen as working for the Israelis, and therefore the domestic populations of those countries just wouldn't stand for it. Have you heard anything? Do you have any views on this?
3: I've heard a few things. Uh, I was privileged to participate in a very high-level briefing on these matters just a few days ago. It was under Chatham House rules, so I can't name any names, but suffice it to say that people of vast experience, uh, both in diplomacy, military affairs, and also extended journalistic coverage of the region and of the conflict in particular, were present. And, you know, as you might expect, all of the possibilities for Forces other than Israel coming in after Israel does what it believes it must do, were subject to criticism, but and skepticism. But the one that evoked the most interest, uh, to my surprise, was the Turkey option. Some Turkey experts suggested uh, that the domestic politics in Turkey might not be as averse to Turkish participation as is commonly assumed, uh, and that may be because Erdogan has been so stinging in his criticism of Israel and his condemnation of Israel's response to the massacre, and in effect, so supportive of Hamas that he and his forces might not be seen as lackeys of Israel if they came in. and not to mention the fact that in the same way uh, that Putin would like to reconstitute the Russian Empire, uh, Erdogan would like to do his best to reconstitute the Ottoman Empire. And having troops on the ground in an area where the, that Turkey controlled as recently as 1918 would be a talking point for him uh, and certainly would bolster uh, Turkey's international role. So. I don't know what to think of that option, but I was struck by the fact that extremely experienced analysts of the region didn't dismiss it out of hand. It may turn out to be ridiculous, uh, but that's, that's my report from the front of commentary anyway.
0: Interesting. All right. Damon, when we were last together two weeks ago, we were talking about the very, very terrible press malfeasance in its coverage of that supposed Israeli airstrike on a hospital, which turned out to be nothing of the kind, uh, and the credulity with which major news organizations repeated information that was propaganda that was supplied by the Gaza Health Ministry, which is controlled by Hamas. So now, in the next two weeks, we've seen that all these reports that come out of Gaza about casualties and so forth contain the proviso that this is the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. So they always put that in, but then they also just repeat the numbers. I just don't know how to find the real information about, for example, how many civilians have been killed in Gaza. How many people have been killed in Gaza? I don't know. I mean, there's now a figure that's you know, goes up every day. It's now around eight or 9,000 people. But based on what we saw, oh, well, what we've seen over, you know, more than two decades with Hamas is that they lie. So what are we to do with this?
4: Uh I don't know, other than continuing to be skeptical. I mean, obviously, people are dying. The images coming out of Gaza make it look like a kind of pulverized wreck of a city, as you would expect, after weeks of bombardment. I mean, what is there to say beyond war is hell, people die in war. Hamas began this war by attacking Israel in the vicious way that it did. Hamas, as we discussed, as Brett mentioned, and, and we've we've all made points this week and others, that Hamas fights by hiding within and behind civilians, uh, within civilian populations. So if Israel gets intel saying that one of the major planners of the October 7th attack is in a building in a specific place right next to a refugee camp, which, as Linda says, is not really like a tent encampment or anything, but is basically a neighborhood in which refugees live. Israel faces this choice. Uh, Are we going to take out this person who we need to take out as part of our operation to remove Hamas at the risk of killing civilians? nearby. Well, what can they do? They can announce again and say, move south, evacuate the northern areas of Gaza because there is a war underway and we are bombing and we are killing, we're blowing things up, and you will probably die if you stay there. And Israel does this. And then if the people don't leave, either because they willfully don't want to and dream of being martyrs or the Gaza Hamas officials block the message or even stand there with weapons pointed at them as people come down out of their apartment buildings to evacuate and they realize, oh, if I try to leave, they'll shoot me in the back. And so they go back in and hope for the best. We don't know what's going on on the ground. And so, I think the most that we can hope for is that Israel abides by the law laws of in bellow conflict, which is the part of just war theory that that regulates what is considered acceptable uh, civilian casualties. Considerations are proportionality. So uh, obviously Israel can't say, well, you murdered 1,400 Israelis, so we will drop an atomic bomb on Gaza and kill a million Palestinians. That would be disproportionate. That wouldn't happen. And Israel isn't doing that and won't do that or anything remotely like it. And then they have to engage in discrimination, which means trying to only kill the Hamas leaders and trying to warn as best they can the civilians and then they have to act and the result is horrible war is terrible it pulls at the heartstrings it's an offense against humanitarian sensibilities but it is sometimes necessary it is sometimes just and that i believe this is one of those cases and so the question of how many are dying We just don't know, and we can't know for any time. I mean, when this health ministry releases numbers like 737 people were killed a half hour ago when Israel bombed this block, we can know that that's not accurate because the most efficient health ministry and the most advanced a democracy in the world could not compile those statistics that quickly. It takes weeks. You have to—it's grisly work. You have to find bodies, you have to find body parts, and figure out how you know which ones constitute individual people, and then check it against ID records and people's addresses. It's it, it I mean, again grisly work. It's ugly stuff, but that's how you actually get accurate information and. Even aside from the, the very important role that kind of uh, anti-Israeli propaganda plays in Hamas' tactics, it's simply impossible that they have accurate information on these things in the midst of the chaos and, and bloodshed going on. So I would just urge everyone, be skeptical. Say your prayers for the people suffering and dying and, and being injured and in great pain, emotional and physical, and let Israel do its work as quickly and efficiently as it can so this can end. If if Israel had not taken out that senior Hamas commander because it was near a refugee camp this week, those people would probably, most of them, would still be alive today. But the war would go on longer because they would have to get him some other place, and a war that goes on longer in the end is going to end up with a higher death toll. So that's... Um, That's, I guess, the way I am forced to look at it.
0: Brett, one word about war being grisly and and awful, which of course it is, and we all know that. So we've had a series of wars between, uh, small wars between the Israelis and uh, Hamas in Gaza. And there is something incredibly misleading about the way the pictures presented. And I'm not now even addressing the false pictures, the pictures of a line of babies or, or young children uh, in shrouds that was not from Gaza, was from the Syrian civil war that is circulating and various other things. I'm not even talking about the false things. I'm talking about the images of rubble from Israeli airstrikes. I have to tell you that after the first time, was it 2014, I think, where, you know, there were all of these images of Gaza in rubble. And then like a couple of years later, I remember seeing a program about life in Gaza and was stunned to see that life in Gaza was normal. I mean, yeah, there were a few buildings that had been, but I mean, basically, the whole place was still standing. And my image of it had been that it was rubble. Can you comment on any of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been to Gaza many times. The common depictions of it uh, are almost uniformly false. There are nice areas of Gaza, for example. It is far from being the most densely crowded urban environment in the world. That's just, I mean, I think Manhattan is more crowded. Certainly uh, major cities uh, uh, elsewhere are more crowded I've been to provincial Egyptian towns just a few hundred miles away, Mansoura in uh, the Nile River Delta, which are poor. Um, you know, these pictures give you a sense that as huge, as huge parts of, of um, Gaza have been devastated. But if you go to the, even today, the uh, website of my newspaper or the Wall Street Journal, you'll see that the images, the moment you kind of zoom out, the destruction which seems so vast when the when the photographer is up close is actually a very small section of an otherwise intact neighborhood in Gaza City or Jabalia or some of the other some of the outlying areas so nothing like this compares to what winston churchill did to hamburg in 1943 or franklin roosevelt did to tokyo and dresden in 1945 or what putin did in grozny and then later in uh, Mariupol in the year two thousand, or again,
0: Aleppo, more even more recently, or Aleppo, and
1: and that raises a second question, which is why is it, why is it that when Israel is taking action to defend itself, there is such an instinct among um, much of the mainstream press to pretend that the damage is vastly greater than that in fact uh, it
0: is, and I think I know the answer to that question. All right, we will get to that. But first, let's take a minute and talk about stress. We all deal with it in different ways. If you're like me, the news itself can be very disturbing. Some of us get headaches, others get stomach upset or insomnia. Still others feel so tired, they don't know how they're going to get through the day. Mental stress can make everyday life seem overwhelming. Therapy can help so much. It's not just for people with serious trauma or major illness. We all need a sympathetic, dispassionate listener, someone with experience and perspective who can reassure us that others have the same insecurities, doubts, and fears and have overcome them. Therapy helps us to figure out how our own minds may be holding us back. Ruminating about our worries and conflicts or the many balls we're trying to keep in the air doesn't help. It just contributes to our stress and self-medicating with booze or drugs is a dead end. Therapy can help unwind your worries and let you be a calmer, happier version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, BetterHelp is a great option. It's incredibly convenient because it's entirely online, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and get started. And if that therapist isn't a good fit, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beg to differ today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash beg to differ. All right. Bill Galston, did you want to mention something about how Americans are responding to all of this?
3: Sure do, Mona. While we've been talking, Quinnipiac University issued a really comprehensive survey, and the results I wouldn't characterize as terribly encouraging. One of the headlines is that 84% of the American people are expressing a high level of concern that the United States is going to get dragged into a Middle East war. And certainly the deployment of two aircraft carriers to the region has, I would suspect, accentuated those fears. Uh, How do Americans feel about Israel's response so far? Well, uh, you know, 50% are approve of Israel's response which is not a very high figure, in my opinion, 35% disapprove; The rest are unsure. Among Democrats, the level of approval is 33% of disapproval, 49%. Mm. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, the level of approval is 32% and of disapproval, 52%. And finally, What about the proposal to send aid to Israel? There again, uh, the American people are in favor, but only narrowly so. 51% say okay, 41% disapprove. That's about where Democrats are, 49, 43. But what's so conspicuous here is that young Americans are in a hell no, don't send it mode, uh, only 29% of them think we should send aid, 65% say we shouldn't. And while 59% of white Americans say that we should send aid, only 40% of African Americans and 38% of Hispanics. This is not good news for the Democratic Party, You know because these numbers split the party down the middle. And there is some speculation that disaffection among young Americans and also Muslim Americans uh, will be enough to cost Joe Biden at least the state of Michigan next year, uh, unless their sentiments become more
0: moderate over the next
3: 12 months. So that's the report from the polling front.
0: Right, right. Okay, let's turn to the uh, new Speaker of the House, because this is someone who, until quite recently, was opposed to aid to Ukraine, which is another aspect of America's world role that is very much in doubt at the moment, and certainly with the election looming, completely in doubt. Bill, you were saying Democrats are divided, the Republicans are torn down the middle on whether we should be aiding Ukraine with, I think, the wind at the back of those who oppose it. And so we have a new speaker who uh, is an interesting choice and he is not opposed to aid for Israel. And yet his proposal is that, yes, we should give Israel aid, but it should be counterbalanced by cutting spending on the IRS. And his view is that uh, this will help to pay for the aid to Israel. Damon, the uh, Congressional Budget Office, said on Wednesday that cutting $14.3 billion from the IRS, according to the Biden administration, this money was going to go toward catching tax cheats in the upper brackets, millionaires and billionaires mostly. So the CBO says cutting $14.3 billion from the IRS would increase the deficit by almost $12.5 billion over the next 10 years. So at least according to the CBO, this so-called pay-for, this offset, would actually make the whole thing more expensive.
4: Yeah. I have to say I have no sympathy at all for the Republican, very deep emotionally felt attachment to the woes of millionaires and billionaires who want to cheat on their taxes. um, David, wait, (laughs) can I
0: interrupt you for one quick second and just say, what is wrong with Democrats? (laughs) When I was younger, Democrats were so great at saying Republicans only care about the rich. And you never hear that now, but here they are giving you on a silver platter an argument to use against them, and Democrats are not picking it up. Well,
4: I mean, there is hesitation, I think that that somehow uh you know average Americans who are not really people who are going to get audited from this uh from the extra funding that uh, Biden helped push through. They think they'll be safer from being audited when really this is about people who uh, owe far more in tax and uh, can get away with it uh, more easily. Uh, Like they're the ones who need to be audited. Although I will also add in my own kind of centrist skepticism there is something a little funny about the cbo hitting this proposal about i mean when you talk about like it'll increase the deficit well against what baseline well the baseline of the cbo estimate on the increased funding that we got just recently over the next 10 years and so so you're you're saying that it, like you know if we just sort of repeal everything that uh, Biden and the Democrats pushed through for the extra IRS people to do the audits, then, you know, you could just say, well, it'll be a wash uh, based on the the baseline of before they they approved it. I don't even know. Like, it, there, there is something a little bit kind of hall of mirrors about all of this. But the thing that I do think Democrats, as you indicated, Mona, should be hitting the Republicans very hard on is that the thing that, first of all, you care about This much and something that you think is so important, it should be used as a kind of bit of leverage over whether our country will continue to supply aid and weapons to Ukraine and its struggle with Russia is basically allowing millionaires and billionaires to get away with paying less tax than that they really should be paying. I mean, it it really shows the priorities of the the Republican Party, and I really find it extremely distasteful. And I think Democrats should be able to kind of tee it up in a way that they can make that case very clearly. Yet there seems to be hesitation. I don't exactly understand it other than, you know, a, a kind of skittishness that Democrats are are very good uh, with. I mean, that is one way in which Republicans and Democrats differ. Republicans are always willing to kind of push the Overton window further and further in the direction of what they want to get accomplished and sort of say, yeah, well, we'll see if, you know, if it actually hurts us down the line. Yeah, it might make things more complicated. But if we gin up hatred of the Democrats just enough before, you know, in the week or two before the election, then they'll still vote for us in the end anyway, because they hate the other guy more. Whereas Democrats, I think because they, first of all, want to get good things done, and they also actually like want to get the largest majority support from the populace uh, and from voters as they can um I think sometimes maybe overthink these things and kind of scare themselves, like scare their themselves by their own shadows. So I guess that's how I see it.
0: Thank you. Brett, this is a moment when you would think uh, in the before times, both parties would have had a sense of the moment. They would have had a sense that this is a real challenge for America's world leadership, for the kind of globe that we want to lead and be part of and live in. And that, you know, petty squabbles about funding the IRS really don't belong in this moment and in in this debate. But we are proving ourselves by this to be a very small minded people, maybe not capable of world leadership. What do you think?
1: You know, uh, this was a concern of mine a decade ago when I wrote a book called America in Retreat. uh, And it was subtitled The New Isolationism and the coming global disorder. At the time, most of my focus was really on a kind of a democratic provincialism and, and quasi-isolationism, which I saw in some of the come-home America themes, not just of McGovern, but of Obama's second term in office. But the Republicans have gotten on, the, on that bandwagon with a vengeance and what uh, Speaker Johnson did, I think, is is yet another illustration of it. The inability of Republicans now to understand just what a catastrophe it would be for America, our allies, and our interests uh, for Russia to prevail in Ukraine uh, just, just kind of staggers belief. It's extraordinary that this wing of the Republican Party is now ascended, and at the same time, not entirely... Uh, surprising, because there was always that streak of kind of isolationism at the root of a lot of Republican thinking—the idea that foreign and domestic policy are a zero-sum game in which, if you invest in one, you detract from from the other. When Trump was elected and seemed to sort of sound the right pro-Israel notes, some of my uh, Jewish conservative friends said, "Well, you can you see that you know his." his views on, on other foreign policy topics don't impact what matters most, which is his pro-Israel perspective. And, and my my repost, uh, my consistent repost at the time was was to say, look, you know, if you're going to be a kind of neo-isolationist or quasi-isolationist when it comes to uh, NATO or when it comes to East Asia, ultimately it's going to come around to Israel as well because the principle is the same and there's not always going to be an Israel carve-out. And I think that what we're seeing here in this absurd effort to trade the IRS funding question for aid uh, to Israel. It's how the Republican Party is really moving powerfully in that direction. You hear it also in some of the rhetoric of people like uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who I think in a way is a mouthpiece for uh, Trump. It's coming out in much of what Tucker Carlson's saying. It's, It's there. So we're back to the 1930s. We're back to not just the America first of Donald Trump, but the America first of uh, the Father Coughlin's of the world on the eve of of uh, December 7th, 1941.
0: Linda, in addition to all that, this new Speaker of the House who looks like, well, what would you say, like the principal of a local high school, you know, kind <laughs> of horn rim glasses, whatever, very mild-looking fellow. So, first of all, Tom Emmer, was voted down because his cardinal sin was that he voted to certify Joe Biden's victory in 2020 which is now in the trumpified maga party that is a, a death sentence so he was he was eliminated and now they've got this johnson guy who is a bit weird linda mm-hmm. i mean he not only did he not certify the 2020 election, but he's a lawyer and he drafted this uh, brief that argued that the entire election was unconstitutional and should be thrown out because some states changed their voting rules to accommodate the COVID-19 virus, I mean, restrictions, which is, you know, so preposterous, but that was very influential in getting a lot of even dumber Republicans to, uh, to support uh, not certifying the election. But by the way, he was
2: only trying to decertify in states that Biden won. That Biden won. <laughs> yes,
0: I know. It's funny about that. The
2: Republican states that changed their rules, that that was fine.
0: That was fine. Exactly. And um, in addition, he repeated some of the really stupider and crazier things like the Hugo Chavez conspiracy theory right. about Dominion voting systems and so on and so forth. So and he may also believe that the earth is only 6000 years old i don't know i mean maybe that's not relevant brett just said we're back to the 1930s we may actually be back to the 1920s with the scopes monkey job <laughs> right
2: now it you know it's really
0: amazing to
2: me, what has happened to the Republican Party. It really has become the stupid party. Yep. And, you know, there was a time when uh, Republicans uh, were sort of laughed at for, you know, for their views and, and you know, and then all of a sudden you, you had intellectuals, Republican intellectuals coming to the fore. And, and during the Reagan era, I think there became a certain
0: respectability But now we see that kind of reversion. Daniel Patrick Moynihan said that the Republicans were suddenly the party of ideas. Right. That's exactly right. So,
2: you know, we've seen that shift and we're certainly seeing... Uh, It with Mike Johnson. I mean, he also has some very objectionable views on uh, homosexuals. You know, he believes in in being able to convert. I guess particularly gay men. Um, His his wife has been, I think, quite involved in some of that and so
0: called conversion therapy. Conversion
2: therapy, right? Yes. Uh, Then you know he's got some very objectionable views on immigration. Yeah, he believes in the great replacement theory, etc. So you know he's not a good guy. But it's not just in the house. It's it's not just the sort of house crazy, the little crazy caucus they've got going there. It's also in the Senate. I mean, look at Tommy Tuberville and what he's doing. We are involved. Our allies are involved in wars, and they need our help. And we have our own. Military officers who can't get their promotions. I mean, you just had the disgraceful, you know, example of the the Marine commandant who ended up in the hospital. I had cardiac arrest, apparent cardiac, and that was because he was doing he, you know, he complained about having to do two jobs at once because Tuberville has put uh, this hold. So you're seeing it in both sides of of Congress both in the Senate in the House the difference of course is in the Senate without noting you know Tuberville who by the way the Senate is now considering, uh, trying to figure out a way to get around what what Tuberville is doing. Uh, And even the Republicans, there was a a long, long, hours-long tirade against Tuberville on the part of people like Joni Ernst and uh, and other senators. Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. And Senator uh, Dan Sullivan, who is a colonel in uh, the Marine Reserves, uh, and others who You know who object to what he's doing? They're 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 not serious. They're not. These are not people who are fit to govern, and it's it's truly frightening uh, because we you know we are coming up on an election, and I don't always believe the polls, but if. The election were held today and the two people running were Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Trump might very well win. And it is worrisome. It's almost as if, you know, we as a country are no longer capable of electing people who are serious and uh, will govern. And it's a very, very dangerous Period that we're living through right now, particularly with the wars going on. And by the way, that it isn't just our helping our allies. We are being attacked. Our forces are being attacked um, as well. And, you know, there is a reason why we've moved these striker groups into the Mediterranean and into the region around the Middle East, because, you know, we we may end up having to protect ourselves, not just help our allies protect themselves.
0: Damon, you wanted to get in on this.
4: Yeah, just to make the observation that it seems clearer to me than ever, especially since October 7th, that and the reactions of everybody to it, that we basically have three blocks in our in our system right now. And the reason why it feels so unstable is that we only have two parties. And, and, you know, dividing uh, two by three is a little awkward when it comes to math. And so what we have is a far left that is, you know, it marinating in anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Americanism, all the, the stuff that we've seen from the far left since uh, at least uh, the late 60s uh, has kind of metastasized to some extent, although it's limited within the the electorate as a whole in this country, thank goodness. So it's more easily isolatable. And then on the right, we have kind of Trumpist isolationism. And then in the middle, we have kind of liberal centrism of the center left and center right. And at the moment, that lives in the Democratic Party. And I know this can be a little disorienting, but the fact is that Joe Biden is— the kind of instantiation of this liberal centrism now, which means that the Democratic Party is its home now. And what we have to hope and work for over the next year is that, and what's going on in Israel and the reaction of the far left to it can advance this, is that that far left essentially gets lopped off of the Democratic Party. We want those people, in effect, to probably stay home to some extent and be replaced by decent-minded Republicans on the center-right who held their nose and voted for Trump out of inertia and out of other considerations, uh, maybe because they believe passionately in abortion uh, being restricted and so wanted to see those judges be appointed, whatever the case. We have to hope that an equal number of those people come on in to the Democratic Party and prop up, buttress, strengthen that liberal center and then win that war. that is really, I think, the agenda that that we face right now. The Republican Party is much more unified at this point in favor of the isolationist strand than the Democratic Party is. It's smaller in the Democratic Party, and so it can be isolated and kept out of power more easily. But that means Democrats need a little extra help. So the Bulwark and its staff and Brett and anyone else over there on the center right, uh, you got to come on in and, and vote Joe Biden and the Democrats, because that's really the only hope we have
0: uh well i i do agree but it's also it's a fact of life that it is harder to mobilize people um you know who are moderate in their outlook and tend to be a sort of equable and and not so passionate about politics it's hard you know to to gin them up to to show up but We'll see. I mean, in 2022, arguably, there was a vote for political sanity where the election deniers were defeated um, in case after case, and especially in the all-important Secretary of State races in a number of key states. They were rejected. The crazier nominees of the Republican Party were rejected. People like Doug Mastriano in, in Pennsylvania and so forth. It would be crazy not to be Terribly worried because the polls on Biden are so bad I mean people just don't want to vote for an eighty two year old guy and so he cannot catch a break in the polling and i I agree he's our best hope but wow it's very very worrying
3: I haven't gotten in on this oh seg-
0: sorry bill yeah go ahead I'll keep
3: it brief uh, this will be a segue to Brett you know I just want to say that all of the evidence that I can muster suggests that You know, the America first isolationist, quote unquote, faction of the Republican Party is not a splinter group. It is the majority. It has taken over the party. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the poll from today that I've been citing on the issue of aid to Ukraine. The tally among Republicans is... 33% in favor, 63% opposed, 33-63. So while I was listening to the proceedings with one ear, I just did a check through polls that have been released in the past few weeks on that question. They all put Republican support for additional aid to Ukraine in the mid-30s. That is the reality. And I don't know what we're going to do about this as a country, but the fact of the matter is that we have one political party that simply does not believe in America's role in the world as it has been defined since the late 1940s. This is a really big deal, and I think we're going to need to come to grips with it politically. Uh, And sometime in the next year, this is going to have to be argued out. And uh, God willing, the people who understand that without the United States doing what it's doing around the world, the world would be a much more chaotic and dangerous place. God willing, those people will step up and assert their views. But uh, I am not confident that it's going to turn out to be a
0: majority. Thank you. Well, it's autumn and autumn is a time of year that we begin to think about food. Well, I do anyway. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. And of course, there are so many great things to cook in the autumn. And I am so excited that we're going to be partnering with HelloFresh because they take so much of the drudgery out of cooking for yourself and your family. They allow you to skip trips to the grocery store, which is so time-consuming, and they make everything fun, affordable, and so easy. So what's so great about HelloFresh? Well, with so many in-season ingredients, you will taste all the freshness of fall in every bite of HelloFresh's chef-crafted recipes. The produce travels from the farm to your door for peak ripeness that you can taste. So that's another reason that it's great, because it doesn't spend time in the grocery store getting stale or getting less fresh than you would want. HelloFresh does all the shopping and the meal planning for you, so the ingredients arrive at your doorstep pre-proportioned and ready to cook, along with pictured step-by-step recipe cards. How easy is that? I'm really looking forward to using HelloFresh and having it simplify my life and save me time and also provide healthy and delicious food for me and my family. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50begtodiffer and use code 50begtodiffer for 50% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash 50begtodiffer and use the code 50begtodiffer for 50% off, plus free shipping. Brett, on February 24th, 2022, a lot of people said that Putin had just made the worst mistake of his dictatorship by invading Ukraine, and Putin apparently had a different view and thought, I can wait them out. Time's on my side. They will lose uh, the appetite to help Ukraine, and I will not lose my appetite to swallow it see, is he, he's turning out to be possibly correct.
1: Well, too soon to tell. I'm not prepared to write off either the Ukrainians or Western support for Ukraine. There is still a broad majority in Congress that wants to help Ukraine. Uh, the Democrats, because they're following the leadership of Joe Biden, who uh, I should add to Damon's point, I will... Um, you know, drop some acid and vote for him come next November, because <laughs> weird weird things keep happening in my uh, voting life. And there are still Republicans who understand what the stakes are. What What is worrisome to me is those Republicans uh, skew older. They, to Bill's point, no longer represent the mainstream of the Republican Party. They're a kind of an endangered species. And you have a party that has become not just nativist, but childish. Uh, And that's, uh, I think, one of the great tragedies of American politics today. I've always said that even if you're a liberal, you should hope that your conservative opposition is a serious opposition, morally and politically speaking. There is always going to be a conservative party in any political system, but there's a question as to whether it'll be serious or unserious. And the tragedy of American politics is we no longer have serious conservatism, in part because of Trump, but in part also because of so many Republicans who sold their principles and sold their souls for a taste of power uh, under Trump. And so here here we are uh, holding on by our fingernails, thanks to an 80-year-old president who still believes in America's indispensable role in the world.
0: (sighs) Yes, may he live to be 120, as we say in the Jewish tradition. All right. With that, let us turn to the highlight or low light of the week. And Bill Galston, let's start with you.
3: Oh, regrettably, this one for me is a no-brainer lowlight. I had a great time in my four years as an undergraduate uh, at Cornell University in the 1960s, but I was brought up short by the following. A fellow by the name of Deron Borders is, or should I say was, or maybe again, the DEI director at Cornell. And here's what he had to say after the Hamas massacre. And I quote, remember against all odds, Palestinians are fighting for life, dignity, and freedom alongside others doing the same against settler colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, and white supremacy of which the United States is the model." And I close quote. He has been put
0: on leave. Stay tuned. Right. Damon Linker.
4: Well, uh, connected up with my my last intervention about uh, a kind of moderate centrist liberalism that's now uh, alive and uh, at least somewhat flourishing in the Democratic Party and certainly more than the Republican, I'd like to give a plug to a, a book that uh, came out a few weeks ago by a friend and scholar I admire quite a lot named Arulian Crayutu. Uh, his last name is spelled C R A I U T U. The book is titled Why Not Moderation: Letters to Young Radicals. This is a, a book from Cambridge University Press. It's uh, slim, uh, not too demanding, and it is a really good read for anyone who really wants to to think through how to negotiate. This kind of middle position between radicals on the right and left. As the title or subtitle indicates, this is kind of a, a classic uh, structure for a book where he's engaging not with one interlocutor who he disagrees with, but with two. One a young leftist, and the other uh, a young a devotee of right wing populism. And allows allows each of these figures to kind of make their case for why their approach to politics is is the best one. And then to the author, uh, responds in the defense of moderation, uh, prudence, and other kind of classical virtues that can help uh, keep us sane and on, on a path toward reasonable politics. So again, I uh, highly recommend the book. I think it can really help uh, our listeners to, um, you know, remind themselves how and why they ended up listening to this podcast and like it so very much.
0: Thank you for that. To me, that book sounds sexy. I love it. All right.
4: That's why we're here, everyone.
2: All right. Linda Chavez. Yes, those are the kinds of things that we take to bed with us every night. (laughs) Exactly. So um, my low light uh, of the week uh, has to do with one of my least favorite senators. He's actually the man uh, whose actions drove me out of the Republican Party even before January 6th. And that's Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley was at a hearing this week in which he was uh, grilling Alejandro Mayorkas, who's the head of DHS, and he had put up on the wall uh, several uh, blow-ups of some social networking comments that had be made by a, a DHS staffer. I don't think the person was actually high up in the DHS, but they were Very ugly and very awful and anti-Semitic, in addition to being anti-Israel, basically cheering on the uh, Hamas uh, killers of October 7th. And so Holly decided to ask Mayorkas about it. Well, Mayorkas, you know, is he apparently the uh, woman who penned these uh, social commentaries was uh, put on leave, on administrative leave. But this is a personnel item. And Mayorkas rightly said, as head of the agency, I can't comment further. I can simply say she's been put on leave. And Holly wouldn't let it go with that. And he basically called Majorcus, uh despicable. He suggested that maybe um, he was sympathetic to these anti-Semitic views and it was really an awful spectacle. And what Mayorkas then did was to remind Holly, or maybe educate Holly, about who he was. I and mean, when we think of him and we talk about him as, as um, having been Cuban born, but the fact is um, he is the son of a Holocaust survivor, his mother's paternal Family was mostly wiped out in the Holocaust, and at least under Jewish law, since his mother is Jewish, presumably Alejandro Mayorkas is also Jewish. And so I thought that uh, the highlight was Mayorkas' response to Holly, Hawley, but Holly's attack was, I think, uh, what was despicable that day. There's a good piece about it in The Hill, and I will link to that. You can actually see the whole interchange because
0: it's there. Thank you, Linda. Brett Stevens.
1: Well, uh, so there is news in the Wall Street Journal that there is a volcano not far from Vesuvius, not far from uh, Naples, that is um, showing signs of seismic and perhaps volcanic uh, activity. It's a it's a volcano called Campi Flegrei. Uh, it is uh, not just any volcano. It is a Supervolcano and area around it has experienced more than 2,500 tremors, earthquakes, in the past three months, indicating the possibility of a major uh, eruption. We have just spent the hour counting our woes in the Middle East, counting our woes in America. Another Krakatoa is the last thing the world needs. So, Here's just hoping, here's just hoping that uh, Mother Nature at least uh, stays her hand here and let's uh, try to sort out and deal with our problems without yet another catastrophe in the world.
0: Oh, indeed. Um, I assume that most of us on this call have been to Pompeii uh, and uh, even 2,000 years afterwards, it is still moving to see the images of women uh, cuddling children, their bodies um, were covered with ash. And so they're able to recreate from the, um, from the ashes what they looked like as the catastrophe hit. And it, it's moving even now, as I say, 2,000 years later, just amazing. Uh, so let's hope. All right. I also have a low light. And um, I think, Damon, you're the only highlight this week. But I want to cite Rick Scott, senator from Florida, who has a piece this week, Time to Unite Behind Donald Trump. So yes, obviously, the first thing you think is, wow, he must really loathe Ron DeSantis. But get past that and look at the the justification for why he is already supporting Donald Trump, who has not yet achieved the status of nominee, but of course, seems very likely. But we should just bear in mind, here's what he writes. An open border with terrorists, criminals, and drugs pouring into our country. A botched withdrawal from Afghanistan that stranded thousands of Americans and our allies behind enemy lines, left billions of dollars worth of U.S. military equipment in the hands of terrorists, and blah, blah, blah. He goes on. And, you know, our cities are, are crumbling. There's crime. He accuses him of uh, appeasing Xi Jinping and uh, eroding democracy and stability around the world. And now Israel is under attack, and this is Biden's fault too. Now, why do I cite this tendentious and ridiculous statement? Because this is going to be what we hear during the general election campaign if Trump is nominated. And Democrats better be ready with responses (laughs) and try to shore up the areas of weakness. I mean, immigration is clearly a weakness. Uh, Crime is a weakness. Uh, I don't know that there's much they can do about wages, though it sure would be nice if wages were to rise between now and November of 2024. But um, this is the kind of thing we're going to be hearing, that none of the troubles that are currently besetting the world would have happened if Trump had been president. And uh, so just hope, We're ready for that line of argument. And with that, I want to thank our guest, Brett Stevens, and of course, our regular panel, as well as our producer, Jim Swift, and our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri. And of course, I want to thank all of our listeners and our sponsors. And we will return next week as every week.